have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we are asking the question today, what is God's vision for His church? What does God want life in His church to look like? We all have preferences, things that we want in a church, but, but what does God want His church to look like? Maybe you're here today and you are looking for a church home. My prayer for you has been this week that God would speak to you through his word and give you an indication of what he is looking for in a church to lead you in your search for a church. And so I hope that this sermon helps you with that this day. If you're here today and you are already a member of Redeemer Church... I think this is a good yardstick for us. This is something good for us to see. You know, here's what God wants for his church. This is what he wants life to look like in his church. Does life in this church look like this? And then, of course, it's not just a corporate thing, but the church is just the people, right? The church is just made up of people. It's a group of people. I'm doing my fingers. If you're listening on the Internet, like my mom used to do, you'd open the church. You know, there's all the people, right? The church, the steeple. Uh, open and there's all the people. The church is just the people. And so we also ask these questions of ourselves as followers of Jesus, as those for whom he gave his life. To give you a little context in Acts chapter 2, God has just blown in by his Holy Spirit and he's given life to the church and the church is beginning to thrive and grow. And we get a chance to see what it looks like when God blows in by his spirit and causes the church to thrive. We get a picture of what a thriving church looks like. And Peter has just finished preaching a sermon at Pentecost explaining how Holy Spirit has come in. And we pick up in Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse 41. Hear now God's word. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that unless you lift your hand from the page, unless you give us understanding, we don't understand anything of eternal value. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and that you would give us understanding of the words that you inspired through Luke. And Father, as we look at this text and see people with glad and sincere hearts, we long for that. Please give us a longing for that. Please give us a longing for a thriving church. I pray that you would make our desires your desires and we would long for our church to look like this church, that we would long for you to blow in by your Holy Spirit and that you would be willing to do this with the same thing you did at that first Pentecost. We, we pray that you would do it here in this place. And I pray that you would be willing to work all of that in our hearts, even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 
as we ask the question, what does God want life in his church to look like? I want you to see two things that they devoted themselves to. Two things they devoted themselves to. And then I want to talk about how do we get there? How can that happen in this place? How, how could it happen in our community? How could it happen here at Redeemer Church? So first, uh, two things they devoted themselves to. Number one, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What does God want life in his church to look like? Well, when the Holy Spirit blows in, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You see it right there in verse 42, right? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Brilliant first point there, right? It's not, I can say because it's not mine, it's God's, right? Sometimes it's best just to take it right out of the text, right? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You see, this church, when God blew in by his Holy Spirit, his vision for the church is that it would be a learning community. That the church would be a teaching community. That there is a content, that there is a message, that there is a, a truth that the church is, it cares about. That there's a, a truth to believe. There, there are lessons to be learned. There, uh, there is content to be communicated. Now, this shouldn't surprise us, right? Think about Jesus and his ministry. He spent three years preaching and teaching, and he had these men and, and women in the larger group that followed him, and he preached and he taught them, right? And then remember, right before he ascends into heaven, Matthew 28, do you remember what he says there? Matthew 28, the risen Christ, he's risen from the dead, and so he says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. He says, therefore, go make disciples of all nations, Right, that have followers of Jesus from all over the place, making something of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Right? And now look what happened right here. The Holy Spirit has blown in. Jesus has ascended into heaven. There are people from all over the world. We saw at Pentecost two weeks ago when we looked at this text. People from all over the world. They spoke different languages. People from all over the world are becoming followers of Jesus. It's what Jesus commanded them to do. Then what did he say to do? Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Verse 41, those who accepted this message were baptized, and so they baptized the people, right? They baptized. And then it shouldn't surprise us, the next thing Jesus said to do in Matthew 28 was to teach them everything I've commanded you. And so in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It's what Jesus exemplified. It's what Jesus commanded. And it's what we see in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit blows in. That the church is supposed to devote itself to the apostles' teaching. That we're a learning community. We're a teaching community. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things about this. Notice a couple of things. If number one is they devoted themselves to teaching, my little A sub-point would be this. Notice that being spirit-filled and being devoted to teaching go together. Right? And you see that here because when the Holy Spirit blows in at Pentecost and fills these people, then they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. And this is important for us to keep in mind. And it's important because of this. Sometimes my spirit filled friends come to me and they ask me the question the folks at church, you're devoted to Bible study, you are devoted to teaching and preaching the word. They ask me, why are folks who are so devoted to teaching the Word, so devoted to Bible study, why are you so afraid of the Holy Spirit? It's a good question, isn't it? Because there's really no effective teaching of the Word without the Spirit doing His work, applying it to our hearts. 
There's no real conviction of sin unless the Spirit produces it. There's no real understanding unless he opens the eyes of our heart. And we've been praying for that during this service. I appreciate that prayer that we'll pray because unless the Spirit works, this is not going to happen. And then sometimes my friends who really study the Bible a lot and are devoted to Bible study, they'll come to me and they say, about your Spirit-filled friends, why don't they teach the Bible more? Why are they not more serious about meeting God in his word? It seems that maybe they look for an experience of God somewhere outside of his word or in some manner that's not outlined in his word. And I think that's a good question as well. Those are both really good questions. You see, most churches tend to lean one way. We're really committed to the Bible study, but we're skeptical of the Holy Spirit. Or we're really committed to the, to the Spirit, but I'm not too sure about Bible study and teaching and teachers, right? I'm just going to let the Spirit lead me and go my own way. But when we think about the ministry of Jesus, it does make sense, right? Remember that night before he was betrayed, he's in the upper room, he's telling his disciples what's going to happen, and he's leaving. And in John 14, and again in John 15, and again in John 16, do you remember how he refers to the Holy Spirit? He says, the spirit of truth is going to come. The spirit of truth. And then here at Pentecost, the spirit that Jesus called the spirit of truth, the spirit of truth comes. And I think that it makes sense that when the spirit of truth comes, then truth matters. When the spirit of truth comes, the truth is significant. It is important. And Jesus went on after calling the Spirit, the Spirit of truth in John 14 and 15 and 16. In John 17 and verse 17, when he's praying for his followers, he says, Sanctify them, set them apart, make them holy by the truth. And he prays this, Your word is truth. So being Spirit-filled and being devoted to teaching go together. I think we can go a little bit further here. I think we can go a little further and say being spirit-filled and being devoted to teachers go together, right? Because look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Those men that Jesus chose to follow him, that he taught directly, and those men he chose to be his first witnesses, they devoted themselves to their teaching. Maybe it's more clear the point that I'm making here if I point out what they did not do. Notice that when the Holy Spirit blew in, the people in the church didn't say, you know, I have the Holy Spirit now, so I have no need of human teachers because I'm just going to let the Spirit lead me. No. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and then they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And they did that because as they grew in their understanding of the church, as God revealed himself more and more, they realized that the Holy Spirit gives some people teaching gifts. And that the Holy Spirit gives gifts to people in the church to edify or to strengthen or to build up the church. And this is how the Spirit usually works. If you want theological language, the ordinary means that the Spirit uses in his people is the word, especially the preaching and teaching of the word, the sacraments and prayer, which we'll talk about more. But that's ordinarily how the Spirit works. Now, you may be wondering yourself, okay, I want to be devoted to this apostles' teaching. Where do I, where do I find the apostles' teaching? Where do we find that today? Well, the apostles' teaching is found in the New Testament, right? 
The Bible defines apostles as those who were eyewitnesses of what happened, performed miraculous signs and wonders that you see here in the text, and were commissioned directly by the risen Christ to be his messengers. And so we see the New Testament contains the teaching of those men. Matthew was a follower of Jesus. John writes five books in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul sees the resurrected Christ and is taught by him. Peter does so. What about Mark? Well, he was a disciple of Peter's. What about Luke, who wrote Acts? Well, he was a disciple. He followed Paul around, saw many of these things himself and investigated. In fact, did you know that that was one of the requirements for a book to become part of the Bible? The early churches, we discovered what was God's word. One of the standards was, was it written by an apostle, one of the guys who saw this happen, or someone who was taught by one of the apostles? And if it wasn't one of those things, it was excluded from the Bible. So we find the apostles' teaching in the New Testament. Of course, that brings us to the question, are we devoted to the apostles' teaching? If you're looking for a church home, it means that you're looking for a pastor who preaches the word of God. It means that if you live life in the church, it doesn't mean that we don't have disputes. It means that our disputes are governed by the Bible. And I say, here is what the Bible says. And you say, here is what the Bible says. And we talk about what the Bible says because it is the only infallible rule of faith and practice. It means we're committed to Sunday school here. We have three classes going. We have weekly Bible studies for men and women that are currently going through the apostolic teaching. You can find details about those in your order of worship and the announcements there. But not just what's going on in the church. What about your own home? What about your own heart? Are you committed? Are you devoted to the apostles' teaching? Do you read the word? Do you place yourself under teachers, those who are gifted to teach? Do you memorize the word? Parents, do you teach your kids the word? Is this something that you talk about at home as you live and move and have your being? You know, the way the church thrives, here's how important this is. The way the church thrives is Jesus poured into his apostles. And those apostles taught others. You can read in 2 Timothy 2, where Paul says to Timothy, as he is in jail and knows that he's going to die, he says, Timothy, find strength in the grace of our Lord. And he says, what you've heard me say in front of other men, I want you to pass that along to men who are able to teach. You see, this is the way the church has been, the way the church has, has, th- has thrived throughout generations. And as we come to this point in time, this is our moment. It is our turn with the baton. How are we running the race? It's important for us to think about that. But I see here in the text, they devoted themselves not only to the apostles' teaching, but they devoted themselves to fellowship. You see that there in verse 42? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now this word fellowship is the word koinonia. And I want us to learn that word koinonia. I don't use Greek a lot because most people don't know Greek, but I believe, I want to say koinonia so many times that you can say koinonia. And the reason I want to keep saying koinonia, and so you can say koinonia, is I just don't believe this English word fellowship 
really in our vernacular, the way that we use it, really conveys the deep, rich source of bonds that they're talking about when the Bible talks about fellowship or better koinonia. When we hear fellowship, we think, hey, let's get you know, coffee and have some conversation and maybe have some cake, and that's really good, and we should do that. But i got to tell you, that is not what the Bible's referring to when it talks about koinonia. There is a deeper something going on here that I want us to understand. Quickly, before I go on, you may say, hey, Scott, I see four things they devoted themselves to. Apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. And you're only talking about two things they devoted themselves to. What's up with that? Let me answer that quickly. I see two things that they devoted themselves to. The apostles teaching and the fellowship. But what about uh, this part about breaking of bread and prayer? uh, Grammatically, that is an appositive. Uh Uh-oh, I was told there was going to be no grammar on the test. But yeah, this is an appositive. And if you're not familiar with an appositive, there wasn't a schoolhouse rock song about that. So maybe you don't know about appositives. But that's when you have a noun or a noun phrase right after a noun, usually set off by commas like this one is. And it explains what the noun is. So, for instance, if I said my best friends, comma, Lisa and Phineas were waiting on me at home, then Lisa and Phineas, those are appositives that rename or describe my best friends. They give more information about them. And that's what's going on here. There are two things grammatically that they devoted themselves to, the apostles' teaching and the koinonia, right? And then what's koinonia? There's a description of what koinonia looks like, which is the breaking of bread and prayer. Those are aspects of koinonia. Why would he write that way? Grammatically, that's the way that it is. But why would he give that explanation? Well, I'm glad that you asked. (laughs) Did you know that this is the first time in the New Testament that the word koinonia has been used? Think about that. Luke wrote an entire gospel without using the word koinonia, and now he uses that word here, and so he defines it. Let me give you a little more specifically what I'm talking about when I say koinonia. And before we talk about the definition, which I want to do, I just want to pause here and and say, do do you think that's significant? That he hasn't used the word koinonia until we get to this point? It's not till after Holy Spirit blows in at Pentecost that he begins talking about koinonia. And the reason for that is there is no koinonia. There's no fellowship, not in the deep biblical sense that we're talking about. There is no koinonia without Holy Spirit blowing in. Let me just keep on going. That means this is not something that we can produce on our own in our flesh. This is not something that we can program. It's not something you can be disciplined enough to do. Holy Spirit's going to have to come do this if we see this happen in this place. All right? Okay, let's keep going. Let's define koinonia. What does it mean when, when, when your Bible translation uses the word fellowship? And I want to begin by talking about what this does not mean, because a lot of people have trouble worrying that it means something that it doesn't. I want to free you from what it does not mean, and then I want to talk about what it does mean. Okay? Let's dive in. What does it not mean? I will bet you, because a lot of people when I talk to them about this, where they go in this text is they look at verses 44 and 45, and then they end up not talking about the text because they don't like 44 and 45, okay? So look at 44 and 45. Let's just go there, all right? We're not afraid, right? Verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common, by the way, which is the word koina from koinonia, 
selling their possessions and goods they gave to everyone as they had need. And people read that and say, oh, no. That's like Marxism. It's like communism. It's like socialism. It's some kind of ism that I don't like. I don't want to do this. So let's just not look at Acts 2. Let's not look at these things. All right? Well, I don't think that's what's going on here. Okay? I think we have to be careful not to read our 19th century political thought and economic theory back into a first century letter. But socialist folks will look at this and say, hey, the Bible teaches socialism. The Bible's a socialist document. Look at Acts 2, 45 and 46, 44 and 45. So why are all you church-going people who believe the Bible, why are you not socialists? So we need to deal with this. Listen, that is not that socialism, communism, Marxism, that is not what this is teaching. And you see, if you just keep reading the text, okay, let's let the Bible speak to us. Let's not impose our thoughts on Just because I don't want it to be communism, that doesn't mean that it's not. What does the text say? Look at the next verse, verse 46. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. There, T-H-E-I-R. There's a lot of grammar today, right? You you know that that's there, that is a uh, what? Plural, possessive pronoun, right? It means the homes belong to them who devoted themselves to the apostles teaching the break and koinonia, right? It means they still owned their homes because they met there. They didn't sell everything they had to give away to other people. Now, they sold some stuff, but they didn't sell their homes. They still had private property. And if you keep reading in Acts, you see that's a case. When you get over to Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, people were selling things and giving the money to the apostles so that there would be no brothers and sisters in need. And Ananias and Sapphira, their sin was not owning something. Their sin was they said they were bringing everything that they had gotten in the sale of their land, but they lied because they had held some back. And listen to what Peter says to him in Acts chapter 5 and verse 4. Peter says to him, Didn't it belong to you before it was sold, i.e. the land was yours, private property, right? Private ownership, the land belonged to you before it was sold. Then what does he say? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? The money was yours to do what you wanted with, right? He's not claiming that the government or the church or anybody else had some claim on Ananias and Sapphira's stuff. It was theirs to do with what they wanted to. And then if you read the context, what he gets upset about is they lied to the Holy Spirit, okay? So, so there's no Marxism, there's no communism, there's private property rights. People are still owning their stuff. That is not what koinonia is. Now, some people get that far and they say, it's not communism, it's not socialism. Let's move on now to Acts chapter 3, right? Okay, well, it's not Marxism, it's not communism, but it's something, right? What is it? Now that I've freed you up from ordering that you, I'm going to tell you to sell everything you own and give it to the church, and the offering would have been better today. But now that you're freed up from my saying that, let's, let's, what does it say? Because it's something. What is koinonia? So let's move into that now. What's koinonia? Well, first, I told you it's the breaking of bread, right? He's explaining what koinonia is. What's koinonia? 
the breaking of bread. And as soon as you read that, the theologians all get into a debate on, is this talking about the Lord's Supper, where Jesus says, you know, uh, when he takes bread and breaks it and says, this is my body given for you. So is this talking about the Lord's Supper, or is it talking about meals in people's homes? Just a regular meal, because a traditional Jewish meal started with the breaking of bread, right? And there are examples of both of those in the Scripture. I see them both. If you keep going in Acts, Acts 27, verse 35, Paul breaks bread with people on a ship. I think it's pretty clear they're not having the Lord's Supper. But there are other times that bread is broken, and it is talking about the Lord's Supper. So which one is it they're talking about? Well, I think it's both. Now, is that just a cop-out that I don't want to have to choose? I don't think so. If I had to pick one or the other, they're obviously eating meals in each other's homes here in the context, right? But read 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. Because Paul says there is not the cup of thanksgiving that we drink. Is it not a participation? Is it not a koinonia in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread that we eat, is it not a participation, uh, a koinonia in the body of Christ? So he definitely thinks there's this koinonia going on during the Lord's Supper. And when you read 1 Corinthians 11, it's really hard to untangle because they gather together in their homes and they have a koinonia meal. They have a fellowship meal and they're just eating with each other. And then as a part of that, they celebrate communion. Because some people at the meal are getting drunk and eating too much. And other people aren't getting enough. First Corinthians 11 is a mess. Right? Go read that this afternoon, right? But it's, it's hard to pull those apart because they tended to happen. So no, I don't think that's a cop-out. I do think it means celebrating the Lord's Supper together, but also eating together in one another's homes. Now, let's talk about that. Let's apply that a little bit. If you're looking for a church, then I would ask the question, if God wants his church to be devoted to the breaking of bread, then does that church have opportunities for you to have communion, to have the Lord's Supper with the body, right? We do here once a month, the first Sunday of every month, and then other holidays like Easter, we always have a Passover meal. Are there opportunities at that church to break? Are there opportunities just to break bread and eat together in each other's homes and in the temple courts, right? Like we're going to have lunch together today. Our community groups meet in homes and someone at the church and eat a meal together. Are there opportunities for that in the church? So if you're looking for a church, you should look for those things. If you're a member of this church, I want to ask you this question. You ready? If God thinks it's important that we eat together in each other's homes, then I would ask the question, how many homes of the other people that are sitting around you that are members of the church, how many of those people's homes have you been inside of and eaten a meal? And then before you get too righteously indignant, they hadn't had me over for dinner, they're a bunch of mean people, then of course the follow-up question is, how many people have you had in your home that are members here at the church? Listen, this is an important thing. These people devoted themselves daily to spending time together, to eating a meal together. And it meant more at this time than it means to us today. To slow down and to share a meal and to share each other's lives with one another. This is so, do you know how important this is to God? It is so important to God that did you know that a requirement to be a leader in the church is that that person must be hospitable. 
One who practices hospitality. You probably knew that because you've been reading 1 Timothy 3. You've been reading Titus chapter 1. Uh, and I see the officer nomination back. We have officer nominations open through the end of the month. And that's one of the things on the blue sheet that says, God's word says the officers you're looking for would have this. That's how important it is to God that he doesn't want leaders in the church unless they are practicing hospitality and having people into their homes, eating meals with them talking about their life. That's how important this is to God. Is it that important to us? So when Holy Spirit blows in, we see there's this koinonia that involves the breaking of bread. It involves prayer. Well, you may say, well, I can see how prayer is fellowship with God, but how is that fellowship with one another? Well, let me ask you this question. Have you ever gotten together and prayed with other believers? We do it every Sunday night, every first Sunday night of the month here. We eat together over in this space, and then we come over here and we pray together. And i got to tell you that when people filled by the Holy Spirit gather together and share one another's prayer requests, and then we intercede for one another, we go before the throne of God for one another for specific things, there is a, a bonding that takes place. There is a knitting together in love. There is a, see, when you say fellowship, it's not deep enough. There is a koinonia that happens in that context. And I know what's going on with you, and you know what's going on with me. And we're crying out to God to ask him to act in that way. And all of a sudden, we're closer to one another. It happened to me this week. I asked him if I could share this. Austin Park, last week on Sunday night, he said, would you guys pray for me in my work at my job? Is it more important to you that they have provision than it is important for you to get to keep your stuff and possess your stuff? That's what this is talking about. Hey, listen. This passage is not indicting our politics or our economic theory. This passage is indicting our hearts. Do you love your brother and sister in need more than you love your own stuff? That's the question it asks. Or, it's asking this question, do you possess your stuff or does it possess you? And you can't turn loose of it because it owns you more than you own it. And you just can't seem to let it go to help someone in the church who is in need. In fact, they were so committed to this. Acts 4 and verse 34 tells us there were no needy persons among them because they kept selling their stuff and providing for those members, those brothers and sisters who were in need. That is deep koinonia. That we would sell our stuff for our brother. Let me just ask you, do you have a desire to share with and provide for brothers and sisters who are in need? Every Sunday that has five weeks in it, we take up a, an offering for our deacons fund. In order to provide for people who have things come up that were, you know, they lose a job. Or unexpected medical bills. We'll do that at the end of September. There are opportunities to do that here and I pray that the Lord will move in your heart. Let me ask you this question, too. Are you willing to give up your stuff? For the other thing is, are you willing to ask when you have a need? Some of us, for whatever reason, maybe it's because we're ashamed, maybe it's because of pride, but when we have a need, we don't want to share it. Listen to me. If you're not willing to share the need that you have, then we can't be this kind of church. If you have a need like this and you don't share it with us, you are robbing us of the ability to be this kind of a church. 
And so, yes, let's be willing to share with those in need. Let's be willing to share when we have a need with one another. Oh, my. Whew, that's some deep koinonia right there. That's enough for koinonia right now, okay? Let me ask this question. Let me ask, how do we get there? How does this happen in a church? Now, if I've lost you, come back to me, because I'm about to say something that you're not going to believe, okay? Come back to me if I've lost you, because usually the way this sermon ends, other preaching, usually the way that you hear it end is it goes like this. You need to be in your Bible more, because they devoted themselves to teaching. You need to pray more. You need to give more. You need to be involved in the programs of the church more. And in order to share more and to do more, you're going to have to get more organized. And we're going to have some more programs. Let me roll them out and show you what they are. That is not what I'm, You may have even heard me saying that. In some, that is not what I'm saying. Okay? Listen to me. That's not what I'm saying because that's not what this text says. What this says is when the Holy Spirit blew in, people just did this. They devoted them. It doesn't say, hey, go be devoted to the apostles. They just devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to koinonia. It just happened when Holy Spirit came in, right? And so for me, to stand here and call you to those things would be wrong, right? And they may be true. You probably do need to be in your Bible more. You probably do need to pray more. You probably do need to care more about your brother. Those things are probably all true. That's not my place to tell you. If you feel convicted about that, that's the Holy Spirit working on your heart, using the preaching of his word. And I would pray that you would be responsive. But listen, for me to tell you to do those things apart from the Holy Spirit, that would just be appealing to your flesh. And I have to tell you that that is the reason why the church is losing people and passion and power. It's because we're calling people to do things in their flesh. Hear me clearly. This cannot happen unless the Holy Spirit falls on this place. It cannot happen in your home. It cannot happen in your heart. It cannot happen in this church unless Holy Spirit falls down here. So what am I? What is the takeaway then, Scott? If there's nothing I can do... Then then what's the takeaway? Here it is. If you feel nothing, you're not compelled by this at all, right? And so you're like, good, yeah, because that's where I am. (laughs) I haven't been buying any of this stuff. Well, then I would say this. Cry out to God and say, God, I just heard in your word that people who have your spirit in them are devoted to the apostles' teaching, which is the New Testament, and they're devoted to koinonia. And I'm not exactly sure what that is, but I'm pretty sure I'm not devoted to it and I don't even care, then you would say, Lord, send your spirit. That's an indication to me that I don't have your spirit in my heart. Would you break my heart by your spirit? Would you take away my heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh like Ezekiel 36 talks about? Now, if you're here today and you are moved by this, right, you do feel convicted that you don't see these things in your heart then I would say pray to God and confess these things. Say, Lord, I see that your followers, when they have the Spirit, are devoted to the apostles' teaching. They're devoted to koinonia. And I don't want to read your word. And I don't even like some of these people. I don't want them in my home. Lord, come in. It it starts with being honest with God, which is all confession of sin is, right? He's not surprised by your thoughts. I just got to tell you, he already knows, okay? So just be honest with God and confess where you are. 
And then just say, Lord, I claim to be a follower of yours. What is wrong with my heart? That the God of the universe has revealed himself in his word. He gives me instruction on how to live life in the world that he created. So he must know what that's about. Lord, forgive me that I don't care about spending time with you in your word. And koinonia fellowship, the God of heaven wanted koinonia with me so much that he put on flesh, that he came here to be mistreated and misunderstood and to die to pay for my sin so that I could have koinonia fellowship with him. And I don't even care. I don't even want to spend time in prayer with him. God, forgive me. Ask him to move in your heart. Just confess where you are and say, Lord, I need your spirit. I obviously need your your spirit to invade my life, to make all these truths come alive in my heart. And these things are just outward indications that he's there and that he's active. I want to close with this. We talked about the biggest lie in America is in conclusion, right? I'm really going to stop here. I just want you to hear the words of Jesus from Luke chapter 11, because I believe he tells us what he would have us to do in this situation. Hear now the words of the risen Christ to you this morning from Luke 11, verse 9. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who, rece- everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, he who knocks the door will be open. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Let's pray together. Father, we're asking. We need your spirit. Our only hope is not in ourselves and our being faithful enough and organized enough and, and, and our hope in our being um, just dedicated enough. We've rededicated our lives a thousand. Our only hope is that your Holy Spirit would invade our hearts. Risen Christ, you tell us here that if we ask, we can receive. That the Father is not slow to grant this request. Father, please send the Spirit. You are a good Father. Please give us what we most need, which is you. Your Spirit living in us. Please be willing to do that. For your own glory, for the good of this community, for the good of this group of people, please come and do that in our midst. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.